Well, how are you guys doing tonight? It's glad, I'm glad to be back. It's good to see you all again, and um, just uh, excited about another opportunity to be together, uh, to open God's Word together, to hear uh, what God would say to us. Uh, for those of you who were not here last night, uh, my name is Eric. I am um, the pastor of the Journey Church in Lebanon, and uh, by God's grace, we've been around about 10 years, and uh, as Tom had said, um, about six years ago, we uh, planted uh, this church here in this community. And I just uh, noticed just a moment ago that uh, Brother Daryl, Pastor Daryl from First Baptist uh, here in Hartsville is here. And let me just say, before you, uh, before you applaud, because a man like him deserves to be honored and applauded, uh, he was 100% supportive from the very mention of the idea of us planting a church here. He was behind us, and it gave such young men, um, I don't feel as young as I was then, but I, such young men, encouragement. So, Brother Darrell, thank you so much for that. Thank you. I want to be half as faithful as that man has been um, in his ministry, and uh, so I'm thankful for you, brother. Um, last night, we began with a message that I want to uh, reestablish and then build on top of uh, tonight. Uh, last night, really, um, we talked about the mission. If you want to think about what the, what the message was about last night, it was about the mission, right? And, and I established and I said, the local church is the hope of the world. The local church is the hope of the world. And the reason for that is because there's not a company, a business, uh, an, uh, you know, an industry that is rising up and making gadgets and gadgets and widgets and offering services that can change a human life and, and change a human eternity. Um, there are um, many companies that uh, their profits rise and fall based on their success. Uh, there may be more people employed or less employed or bigger 401ks if they succeed. But if they fail, there's not much fallout other than economic. But if the local church does not live out her mission, if the local church fails in our mission, it, it's human lives, it's eternities on the line. It matters so much. The local church is not exaggerating the hope of the world because it carries the only message that can produce that type of change. It carries the only message for a sinner on how they can be forgiven and reconciled to a God who is holy, holy, holy. And we talked last night that the Father opens eyes to see Jesus, that only God can open the eyes of the blind. And yet, we don't sit back with our hands in our pockets and our arms folded and say, boy, I wish he would just open some more eyes. But instead, as Paul was told, Jesus tells him, I'm sending you out to open eyes, to open eyes, to help people to turn from darkness to light, from blindness to sight, from, forgive, you know, from Satan to God, and to be forgiven of their sin and find a place among the sanctified in me. And how does that happen? He planted churches that would go out and open eyes. And so last night we talked about our mission is to join God in the business of open people's eyes to see the gospel. So tonight what I want to do is, last night was the mission, tonight is the message. What is this message that we go out on mission to proclaim? Uh, if you're anything like me, uh, here's what I can often struggle with. I can struggle with um, uh, essentially putting my perspective uh, into other people's lives. In other words, instead of looking at your life for what it is, I'll often um, impose and superimpose my life and my circumstances onto your life. And let me see if I can explain this better than what I just worded it, because that was poorly worded. Um, 
I, I will think because my life is X, Y, and Z, then your life must be X, Y, and Z. And that because I have found hope uh, in Jesus and I don't fret over this issue, I don't fret over that issue, that you must do the same also. So that when I look at people's lives, I don't remember sometimes that many of them are trying to cope with life and deal with guilt and deal with shame and deal with uncertainties and chaos and all those things through their own strength without hope, without the means of grace that I rely on and even sometimes um, forget I'm relying on on a day-to-day basis. What I do is I impose what I take for granted in my life into everybody else's life, and that's not reality. Maybe you're like me and you do the same thing as well. You live around people, you work with people, you go to school with people every day that you somehow forget what they're going through really. You forget that, no, if they're not in Christ, they are struggling in their life with making sense of why do I exist? What is my purpose? Where can I find satisfaction? And they are gripping and reaching for anything that they think they can fill that hole with. Many of them don't know where to turn when the doctor delivers bad news. They're just maybe hoping this doctor can be my savior instead of turning to the savior. Many are dealing with the chaos of relationship issues. We're just hoping things will get better. Maybe in time it will get better. How do they make sense of their child going astray and doing things that they wish they could have them not do anymore? What are they relying on? And sometimes I forget that people out there do not have what we have. They're not leaning on what we take for granted. And so it is so important for us to have our eyes open to see, no, if people are living without Christ, they are in a bad situation. They are in a bad situation. They don't know where to turn when life throws curveballs at them. They don't know what to put their hope in when they go through pain and suffering. They don't know where to go to find relief from this guilt and this shame that they carry. They don't know where to turn away from or the power or the strength to overcome sin and temptation and bad habits. They're leaning on themselves. They're hoping maybe somebody will offer them a a wise word that they can apply. They'll they'll turn anywhere and everywhere. And we carry the message for where that hope is found. I want to show you a passage that maybe will get us to the place where our hearts need to get. In fact, I'm going to go through a lot of passages tonight. So bear with me. Nehemiah chapter one. Nehemiah chapter one. I want to read the first four verses. I want to I want to ask you a question. It says this, the words of Nehemiah, the son of Hakaliah. Now it happened in the month of Chislev in the 20th year as I was in Susa, the capital, that Hananiah, one of my brothers, came with certain men from Judah. And I asked them concerning the Jews who escaped, who had survived the exile and concerning Jerusalem. And they said to me, the remnant there in the province who had survived the exile, is in great trouble and shame. The wall of Jerusalem is broken down, and its gates are destroyed by fire. As soon as I heard these words, I sat down and wept and mourned for days. And I continued fasting and praying before the Lord God of heaven. Nehemiah begins his accounting of his situation by speaking about the exile that occurred. Um, what we find in, throughout Israel's history is that God warned and warned and warned that exile was coming if they did not turn from their wicked ways. And 
of course, uh, they would at times turn for a moment, but then ultimately they would keep going back to false gods and, and intermingling with uh, neighboring countries and taking on and adopting their worship practices and, and all these different things. And God finally carried through what he said he would do, and that was send them into exile. And he gave the Assyrians victory over them. And Nehemiah is in Susa, the capital of where the Assyrians reigned. And all of a sudden, a, a, a party, right, a, a, a group from his homeland, from Israel, and more particular from Judah, the capital, right, where Jerusalem dwelled, where the temple was. And they came and they told him, the city's destroyed. The walls are tore down. Our people are shamed. We have no protection. And it appears as if God has lifted his hands from us. And when Nehemiah hears about the condition of the city, it says, I sat down and wept and I mourned for days. He didn't just go, man, that's terrible. And then move on with his life. He was so distraught. He was so bothered by the condition of the city that he, that he mourned and he wept and he fasted for days, praying before the God of heaven. Here's the question I want to ask you tonight. Are you grieved over the condition of the city? Are you grieved over the condition of the city? Are you grieved by the reality that there are countless thousands all around you who are facing a miserable, Christless eternity? If something doesn't change, if something doesn't happen, they're going to face the wrath of God for all of eternity. Does it bother us? Does it grieve us? Does, does it cause us to mourn and to pray? In fact, watch what he begins to pray. He said, O Lord God of heaven, the great and awesome God who keeps covenant and steadfast love with those who love him and keep his commandments, let your ear be attentive and your eyes open to hear the prayer of your servant that I now pray before you day and night for the people Israel, your servants confessing the sins of the people of Israel. He, he, is, he is seeking to intercede on their behalf, praying for them, praying for the forgiveness of their sins. Even I and my father's house have sinned. In other words, I'm a part of the problem. I'm a part of the issue. I have sinned. We have acted very corruptly against you and have not kept the commandments, the statutes, the rules that you commanded your servant Moses. Remember the word that you commanded your servant Moses saying, if you are faithful, if you are unfaithful, I will scatter you among the peoples. But if you return to me and keep my commandments and do them, though your outcasts are in the uttermost parts of the heaven, from there I will gather them in. I will bring them to the place that I've chosen to make my name dwell there. They are your servants and your people whom you have redeemed by your great power and your strong hand. O oh Lord, let your ear be attentive to the prayer of your servant to the prayer of your servants who delight to fear your name, to give success to your servant today, him, Nehemiah, and grant him mercy in the sight of this man. Now I was the cupbearer to the king. Here's the question I want to ask you. Following are you grieved over the condition of the city is the question, are you praying for God to move in this city? Nehemiah did not simply hear and say, this is terrible, but he was then moved to pray. He was moved to plead to God for the sake of those who did not know him, for the sake of the city. 
that was distraught and in shambles. Why? Because God has lifted his hand from them. Their disobedience, their rebelliousness, their insurrection to want to live their own way and according to their own statutes. God let them be as they were and Nehemiah was grieved over it and he began to pray. Nehemiah would then go on to have a vision for what needed to happen in the city. And here's what encourages me. This church and other churches in this community have a vision for this city not to remain in darkness. There has to be a vision to say, we're not okay with that. We're not content for people to be wandering aimlessly through life, starving in need of the bread of life, thirsty in need of the living water, and here we have that for them. We're not okay with it. We're not content to go about business as usual to say, well, you know, we're okay. We're doing fine. I mean, Nehemiah had it pretty good. He's the cupbearer to the king. He's in the capital of the city. Things are okay with him. But see, a heart that reflects the heart of God is not okay when it sees the condition of the city and shambles and ruin where people do not know God and are not following him. And while we might say we're okay, we have found grace. We have tasted and seen that the Lord is good. We should be disturbed at the reality that many do not. We need to be devastated over the condition of the city. It needs to bother us. It needs to bother us that here in this county, there is a 90% divorce rate. That is unspeakable. What is the result of that? Why is it 90% divorce rate? Because people don't understand how to put God at the center of their marriage and walk with him through troubles and trials and hurts and pains. They're just trying to get by. They're just trying to do life best they know how. When it hurts, they move on. When it's too hard to forgive, they move on. How in the world do people learn to forgive? Because they've been forgiven. How in the world do people know how to love when it's not easy to love? Because they've been loved unconditionally. How in the world do people know how to put up with the hard people? Because we've been put up with. It's only when we have this relationship vertically with God that we even have a clue how to live horizontally with others. Why is there a 90% divorce rate in this area? Because there's a missing piece in all of those relationships, and that is Jesus at the center. It should also grieve us that last time I heard and checked, this county was the most unchurched county in the state of Tennessee per capita. Meaning, percentage-wise, there are more unchurched people based on the size of the population versus the number who go to church than anywhere else in the state. We should not be okay with that. We should never say, well, you know, but at least it's not us. Because what does it tell us if they are unchurched? They either do not understand something about the value and need for community and walking life with others, or they don't know God at all. And neither one of those are good options. Are we grieved by this? Are we grieved by the fact that it's in our backyard? Are we moved to pray? Are we moved to plead? I love how Clint prays. You know why? Because we need big things to happen. We need a movement of God. 
We don't want incremental change. We want God to show up. We want God to come in power. We want to believe that our God is the God who parted seas. He's the God who spoke a word in healing and dead people were raised. We're not talking about a God who might, maybe could do something, maybe if, you know, all the conditions are right. No, this is the God who can move with power. But are we his people willing to pray for him to do so? Are we willing to be the answers to those prayers? We have to be grieved. The godly response to hearing about the condition of the city is for us to be moved and mourned over the reality that hell is still hot and forever is still a very long time. And we have the only message that can change that destiny. So what's the solution? What's the solution? What do we do? I want to hit a few passages and begin to paint a picture of where these people turn to and why we have to show them that there is another solution. Genesis chapter 3 is interesting because it not only tells us where this sin condition originates from, but even in Genesis 3, we begin to see glimpses of the gospel. Genesis chapter 3 Most of you may be familiar with the text. Uh, I'll read the first seven verses because we see the problem and then we're gonna find what man's solution often is to the problem. It says, now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast of the field the Lord God had made. He said to the woman, did God actually say? This is Satan's tactic. Did God actually say? He begins to question God's word. He begins to question God's word. Did God really say that you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? Well, that's not at all what God said. In fact, Satan is distorting God's word here, which is a tactic he very much still uses. Did God really say you can't eat from any tree in the garden? Well, no, he didn't say that at all. Eve answers, no, the woman said to the serpent, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said you should not eat of the fruit of the tree that is in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it lest you die. So when distorting God's word didn't work, watch what he does next. But the serpent said to the woman, you will not surely die. He then denies God's word. That's not true. You will not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be open. You will be like God, knowing good and evil. So when the woman saw the tree was good for food, that it was a delight to the eyes, that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate, and, and she also gave some to her husband, who was just sitting there with her. Just watching it all unfold, like, you know, that looks pretty good. Let me get a bite of that. Then watch this. Then the eyes of both were opened. What does that mean, they were opened? They were open to what they just did. All of a sudden, there was a self-awareness of their rebellion, their sin. And they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. This is a significant passage because we not only see the the origins of sin, we also see the origins of man's response to sin. And that is what? They ran and hide and they tried to provide for themselves a covering. They tried to provide for themselves a covering. Now what's going to end up happening through the rest of this chapter is God is now going to pronounce the fallout for this choice. To the man, to the woman, and to the serpent, 
They are told, here's what's going to happen as a result of the choice that you have made. From dust you were made, and to dust you will return. Death, the wages of sin is death. And this relationship has now been affected. Instead of walking with God in the garden, they are now being kicked out of the garden, where they had free access to God in this relationship. It's now all different. There's going to have to be a mediator between them. There's now going to have to be sacrifices made so that God's wrath can pour out on a substitute in the place of the sinner. And watch what happens. And this is so significant. Do not miss this. Verse 21, before he removes them from the garden, says this, and the Lord God made for Adam and for his wife garments of skins and clothed them. Now you say, okay, why is that so significant? Why does that matter so much? Well, here's the thing. They had already covered themselves. Why, why change their clothes? Did, did God have a desire for this outfit because it fit them better than this outfit? Did, was it a taste issue? Like, ah, oh, that doesn't look good on you. Go out in this instead. No, I hope you pick up my sarcasm. Okay? <laughs> Don't leave right now. Like, man, he said God was into fashion. Um, no, that's not the issue. See, the issue is not fig leaves and, and God not having a thing for fig leaves. There's two issues at play here. One, fig leaves are not sufficient to cover over sin because see, when it says that he took for them skins, what does that mean? Skins of what? Animals. And if he clothed them with an animal, what does that imply happened to the animal? It died. I'm, I'm assuming he didn't tie them to a belt alive and keep them around them, Right? They died. There had to be the shedding of blood. There had to be a substitute in their place. Those loincloths, those, th- those fig leaves were not sufficient. Something had to die, and they had to be reminded of it by wearing it. But let me say, tell you something else that this points to. The reason it was insufficient is because man cannot provide his own covering. He must have a covering from God. Sin requires a covering from God. God must provide our covering. Please see this. Because the whole gospel message is tied to this, to this idea. Man cannot deal with his sin by providing his own covering. And can I just tell you something about what the people in this community who do not have Christ are doing? They're still running and hiding from God, and they are still covering themselves with modern versions of fig leaves. If I just try to do better, right? If I just try to get my life on track, maybe if I don't cuss or don't do this, maybe if I'm nice to my neighbor, or maybe if I show up to church once a year, or maybe if I, and they begin to make their own little fig leaf deals with God, their own covering for sin, their own covering for shame and for guilt. People are still running and covering with fig leaves all over the city. It's still happening. And the problem is this, unless God provides the covering, there is no relationship with him. Unless God provides the covering, there is no relationship with him. But here's what we find after that passage. Throughout the Old Testament, God begins to paint the picture and God begins to foreshadow the day where he would indeed provide the covering. There was a system in place to keep a temporary uh, substitute for sin. The sacrificial system, animals would would be... uh, 
killed on the altar, blood would be shed, death would happen to cover over their sins. But God was promising a once and for all sacrifice. God was promising one who would come in the form of a man and suffer for sinners. On him would be the chastisement that would bring us peace. By his stripes we would be healed. He would bear our iniquities. We, like sheep, all go astray, but the Lord would lay upon him the iniquities of us all. And then one day in the wilderness, a man begins to cry out, make straight the way of the Lord. Behold, the Lamb of God. And John the Baptist points his finger to Jesus of Nazareth and says, there's the Lamb of God. And Jesus begins to teach to live a righteous life. And eventually he goes to the cross where he would give his own life as a substitute on the altar for sinners. Where God would bring his wrath down on his son's head. His son would be treated as a sinner so that sinners could be treated as sons. The one who knew no sin would become sin so that those who knew nothing but sin could be declared righteous. In fact, Romans chapter three perhaps gives the absolute best description of this transaction and what has happened. Romans chapter three, verse 21 through 26 says this. The verse before this, go, the, the passages right before we get to this makes this statement, right? That none are righteous, no, not one. No one understands God, no one seeks God, right? Nobody, no, nobody is right with God, Sin, sin separates us. Nobody from works of the law can, we be, can be justified with God. Paul writes these really, really discouraging words. Bad news, you might say. You can't get yourself right with God. You can't cover with enough fig leaves to suffice. And then watch what he says. But now, look at your neighbor and say, but now. Listen, anytime, anytime God lays out the bad deal and then turns around and says, but now, that's so good. You need some but nows in your life, right? Um, Ephesians chapter two does the same thing. After three verses of telling us how bad off we are, children of wrath by nature, we ran after our flesh, we ran after the prince of the power of the air. He then says the beautiful words, but God. Some intervention by the grace of God. Watch what he says. But now, the righteousness of God, a right standing with God, has been manifested, has been made clear, has been seen for us, has been manifested, has come about apart from the law. Apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bear witness to it, the law and the prophets were pointing to this, there is now a righteousness that has come apart from the law. So you can't obey enough to make yourself right with God. There's a righteousness now apart from the law, even though the law was always pointing to it. The righteousness of God through faith in Jesus Christ for all who believe. A right standing with God that comes through faith, believing, trusting, obeying, surrendering to what Jesus has done. To fully submit to the finished work on the cross as being on my behalf that I really am made right with God on the basis of what he did, not on the basis of what I can do. When I have that kind of faith, when I believe, it says, for all who believe. For there is no distinction. 
For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. In other words, there's no distinction between us as like the good people, the bad people, the ones who are a little bit better than others, the ones who impress God and those who don't. Can I just tell you something? God is impressed with nobody's resume here, including the one speaking. God never looked at me and was like, whoa, this guy's a big deal. Never. There's nothing that I can show God about my life where he's gonna be like, Man, you have got it going on, dude. It's pure grace. It's pure grace. There's no distinction. There's no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God. By the way, that is the definition of sin. It's falling short of the glory of God. When we fall short of the glory of God, we are in sin. It's not just doing the really bad stuff. It's not just breaking a few commandments here and there. Anything not done to glorify God is sin. Romans 14 even tells us that eating without faith is sin. Let that one sink in. Think about that one later, all right? For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God and are justified. That word, fancy word, simple meaning. Justified means just if I'd never sinned. That's what it means to be justified. I'm treated just if I'd never sinned. I'm justified before God. He said, he says, we are justified by his grace. By what? His grace. Through the redemption that is in Christ Jesus. Through the covering that comes in Christ. Through that covering who God put forward as a propitiation by his blood. Fancy word propitiation just means a wrath-bearing sacrifice that diverts the wrath off of one onto himself. Jesus was the propitiation for our sins, the one who bore the wrath so it diverted off of us. We are justified by his grace as a gift through the redemption that's in Christ Jesus, whom God the Father put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. We receive this gift by faith. You don't start doing a lot of stuff. You don't go, okay, here's my promise. I'm gonna get this area right. I'm gonna get this area right. No, no, no. We enter just as we are in all of our brokenness and all of our sin and all of our shame with our fig leaves attached to us, realizing that they don't do anything for us. And we come and we say, I need the covering that you alone provide. Only God can provide the covering. And listen, friends, he has provided it through Jesus Christ. There's no reason for anybody here to leave with fig leaves on tonight. You don't have to. You don't have to try hard, work harder, try harder, do better to please God. Only through Christ can you please God. In fact, I'm gonna give you, I'm gonna give you a picture. I'm gonna give you a picture um, to help you understand this concept. I'm gonna get two volunteers just to give you a quick illustration. Anybody willing to come on stage? Um, anybody willing? Okay, you back there, come on up. Let me get one more, one more, one more. Yeah, you right there, buddy. Come on up. Y'all two come up. Give him a hand. All right. Stand right here, right here in the front, okay? Now, some of you may have seen this illustration before, but I have not found a more powerful way to illustrate this. You're good. You're not, I'm not going to hurt you. Okay. Um, okay. How you doing, buddy? You doing good? All right. Um, you're going to be, uh, you're going to be a sinner tonight. Um, don't worry. We're all like you. Um, so, so this is going to represent, um, the, the sin that covers you. This is, and, and really represents the fig leaves 
that you attempt sometimes to make yourself right with God. And it's, it's our failures, it's our faults, it's pride, it's anger, it's lust, it's greed, it's, it's fill the blank and it's our sin. And we all carry this. We all, we all are born into a state like this. Something must be done. Something must be done. Uh, you, my friend, get the privilege of being Jesus tonight. What, did you even have a clue you were gonna be Jesus when you woke up this morning? Um, don't worry, it ends in about five minutes. But, but for five minutes, you can say you were. All right, so here's what I want you to think about tonight. Okay, Jesus came into the world to not just die for sinners, but to live for sinners. Okay, what do I mean by that? Jesus came to give us a righteousness that we did not have on our own. A righteousness that comes from obeying the law. See, Jesus came. Remember what Jesus said? He said, I did not come to abolish the law. I came to do what? Fulfill it. I came to do it. I came to live what you did not live. And, and, and so we carry the sin. We carry the shame, the guilt. That we don't obey God perfectly. Right? Be perfect, therefore, as your heavenly Father is perfect, Jesus commands. Who here has met that expectation? Exactly. And so this is our condition. And this is what the gospel is. Short, simple, easy, easy to understand. This is what the gospel tells us. That when we hear about this news, that God sent his son into the world to not just die for us, but to live for us, to fulfill the law on our behalf, when we come and like it says, by faith, believe. Receive by faith and believe. This is what the Bible says happens. It's, it's a great exchange that takes place. Because at the cross, what happened is that the wrath of God was poured out on his son's head for my sins. Not sin in general. Not vague concepts of sin but the real life stuff, the real life junk in my life. The son was treated as if he had done it. The son was punished as if he had committed the sin, the gossip, the glance at the computer that doesn't honor God, the backbiting, the impatience, the worry, the greed, the pride, as if Jesus himself was the doer. And yet we sometimes forget, though, that not only are we left kind of now without the bad stuff, right? We're justified, just as I've never sinned. It's gone. It's not on me. And guess what? It's not going to come back to me. This is all the sin I have ever committed, will commit, or could commit in my future. It's all been nailed to him. But that's not the only thing that happens. See, the exchange is... I'm now robed with the righteousness of Christ. Meaning that when God looks at me, he sees me through perfect obedience because his son's obedience is now transferred into my account. As if I had really lived it. He was treated as if he had really sinned and I'm treated as if I really did obey. Can anybody here think of a better reason why it's called good news? That's the good news of the gospel. This is the picture. Stay right there, gentlemen, for one more second. You're being great sinners and Jesus. This is what I want you to understand when it says, but now a righteousness of God has been manifested apart from the law. Although the law and the prophets bore witness to it, it bore witness about the day the Savior would take sins from sinners. 
This is a righteousness of God through faith in Jesus for all who believe, for all who come to him. For there is no distinction. It's not, it's not the good people who get to come and experience this. There is no distinction. For all have sinned and fall short of the glory of God, but are justified by his grace as a gift through redemption that is in Jesus Christ, whom God put forward as a propitiation by his blood to be received by faith. Can I hear a hearty amen? Amen. Thanks, guys. Give these guys a hand. This is what is meant. This is what is meant by passages like this. When it says, for our sake, he made him to be sin, who knew no sin, so that we might become the righteousness of God, 2 Corinthians 5, 21. He made him, God the Father made him, Jesus, who knew no sin for our sake, so that we, who knew nothing but sin, could be made the righteousness of God. Listen to how Paul says it in Philippians chapter 2, or I'm sorry, Philippians chapter 3, 7 and 9. It says, but whatever gain I had, I counted as loss for the sake of Christ. Indeed, I count everything as a loss because of the surpassing worth of knowing Jesus Christ, my Lord. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things, and I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ. I give everything away to have him. If I have everything but do not have him, I have nothing. But if I have him and I have nothing, I have everything. For his sake, I've suffered the loss of all things. I count them as rubbish in order that I may gain Christ and be found in him. Key words, not having a righteousness of my own that comes from the law, but that which comes through faith in Christ, the righteousness from God robed in it that comes on faith. That's the gospel. That's the message that we carry. Our message is one of so much hope in a world of so much bad news. There really is bad news. Sinners will be perishing eternally if something's not done about their sin condition. There are no amount of fig leaves that can fix it. But by the grace of God, there's no need for fig leaves to fix it, for God himself has provided the covering. And we are the ones who are holding this out to people to say, it's free. It's free. We need to be moved by the reality that so many are ignorant to it. You know, when most people drive by our churches, they assume that's the place where people tell them how to do things better. Do this, don't do that. Do this, don't do that. They don't see this as a place filled with sinners who have found amazing grace. They don't know us for our message. Our message is the very thing that we want to give to people. This is how people are changed. So here's what we do. Let me give you a few ideas. Number one, we need to strive to embody the gospel as a church. All churches need to be more than just people who proclaim it with our mouths. We must embody it in the culture of the church. You know what I mean by that? Embodying it in the culture. People are starving for real community. That's why we get dressed up in our favorite team's gear and we go yell like idiots at ball games. Because we are so hungry for a taste of being a part of community. 
to feel like we have a sense of unified mission. The church offers to people a chance to be a part of a community that accepts you as you are. It doesn't matter what your economic status is. It doesn't matter what your race is. It doesn't matter what your past is. The church is the place where people can find themselves accepted, not on the basis of who they know, and not on the basis of how right they get it in their life every day. It's people who love them and care about them and who walk with them through pain and trials and suffering. It's people who meet their needs when they're hurting, when they need a meal or they need an encouraging word, or maybe even when they need a hard word. People are dying for that kind of community, and we must embody the gospel by embodying those kinds of traits. Second, we must spread the fragrance of Christ in the city. We must spread the fragrance of Christ in the city. Tim Keller talks about four types of churches. Churches that are in the city, meaning geographically we're located here, but that's about as far as it goes. Churches that are against the city, meaning we just hold ourselves up and it's that big bad city out there and all those lost people, but we got it right in here. We can be a church against the city. We can be a church of the city, meaning we begin to reflect the values of the culture instead of being distinct from it. We don't want to be a church of the city. He says the fourth type of church you can be, and it's the one we want to be, it's a church for the city. We are for the city. We want to serve the city, be the fragrance of Christ in the city. We want to point them to hope. We want to embody this message of the cross by how we live and serve others. That's what it means to be for the city. We want to be the answer to the prayer, your kingdom come, your will be done on earth as it is in heaven. We want to show the reign of Christ coming to earth by how we live and serve the city. That they would see your good works in heaven and see your good works and glorify your Father in heaven. That's what it means to be a church for the city. Spreading the fragrance of Christ. And then third, inviting people to experience worship. Inviting people to your houses of worship, whether you come here or somewhere else. Here's here's the truth. Sometimes people have to see other people loving and serving the Lord and worshiping the Lord before their eyes are open to doing it themselves. Let me see if I can explain this. Donald Miller, in a book called Blue Light Jazz, made this observation, and I think it's very insightful. He said he had no love for jazz music before meeting a friend who loved jazz music. He said he didn't understand it, he didn't get it, didn't get the infatuation with it, didn't understand all the nuances, just not his taste. And then he met a friend who loved jazz music. And when they would listen to jazz music, he would say, oh, oh, watch this, watch this, listen, listen. And he would begin to see his friend passionate about jazz music. And he said, you know what started happening over time? The more he spent time with that friend, he started loving jazz music. Why? Because sometimes you have to see somebody else love something before you can love it too. Friends, inviting people to join you to worship God is one of those opportunities to invite them into a place where there are lovers of the Lord crying out, who are, who are praising his name, who are eager to say, speak to me, God, I need, I need help, I need encouragement today. Sometimes when they see other people loving God, it teaches them how to do the same. And you can do that easily. Tomorrow night we're going to talk in more detail 
about how you can be a witness in this community. And I'm so excited to teach about this subject to you tomorrow. But be an inviter. At a minimum, invite people. There's statistics and research out on this subject that uh, most unchurched people, if invited, it's like 70-something percent, would be willing to attend church if invited. So can I just say, with Easter a couple of weeks away, you should make it your mission to bring a person with you to church. A person. Believing and trusting that if God would open the door for them to come, that maybe they would hear the gospel, maybe their eyes would be open like we talked about last night. I'm going to close with this. I want to remind you why our passion and our heart for the city needs to be one of grieving and mourning the reality that so many don't know him. So many are going through so much without the hope that we take for granted. Last year, I was in South Carolina preaching at a revival at this small country church in a town called Belton, South Carolina. And I did a revival there during the week, and then I did a youth event that weekend. And um, I had preached a session that day, and I had one more session that night. And in between the two sessions, they took the students bowling. And they asked me if I wanted to go, and I was like, ah, I think I'm going to hang. Um, I think I'm just going to chill. I, I need to get my mind fresh. I need to be thinking about what I'm going to talk about tonight. I had a long drive home. I was preaching the next day at church. Um, and they had this big, massive graveyard uh, connected to the church. And it was so big, there's like a track in the middle of it. Like, it was really big. And so it was a beautiful day. And so during that time when they were gone, I just went and started walking around that track. I was just praying and talking to God and, um, and just enjoying the weather and, and, and walking around this track. And then about my third or fourth lap around, I noticed an interesting little segment of tombs. They stood out from the rest, and they were kind of circled by themselves. And it just drew my eye. And so I immediately went over and started looking at these tombs. And I saw on the head markers names and dates. And as I started connecting dots of names and dates, a story started to emerge. I want to tell you that story. There was a lady by the name of Adela Lloyd who was born in 1906. And she married a man by the name of Curry. Curry and Adela Lloyd. In 1932, they had twins, I'm assuming, Bobby and Betty. Five years later, Bobby dies. In 1941, Curry and Adela had another child, Linda. But Linda either died at birth or before she was one because her death date matched her birth date, the year. In 1945, Curry, her husband, dies. So in a span of eight years, in her 30s, this woman buries two children and her husband. And I just sat there going, oh my goodness. Betty, her only surviving child, would die at the age of 42. So at 68 years old, Adela had buried her entire family. 
her spouse, and three children. She would go on to live 24 more years. And as I started connecting these dates and these stories and seeing these little children headstones, I started thinking to myself, oh, Lord, if she didn't know you, how in the world does she make it through life? I hope she knew you. I hope she had you. How would you handle your whole life being ripped up upside down just like that in eight years in your 30s, burying your husband and your two children? And then as an adult, losing your remaining child and living 24 more years without them. And friends, can I just say this? There are people all around here facing that kind of reality. They're hurting. They're in pain. They are looking for hope. And we carry the message that solidifies our hope. We carry a message that comforts the mourning, that gives peace to the grieving, that gives hope for tomorrow. But without that message, what are we clinging to? What did Adela Loy cling to if she didn't have Jesus? Can I ask you that? And here's the question. What is this city clinging to if it's not clinging to Jesus? We have an incredible message of a God who saves, but not only saves, but who gives us this promise. I'm Emmanuel. God with you. I will be with you always to the end of the age. We have people living their life needing that message. And the local church are the carriers of that message. Who are we waiting on to do this? If not us, who? And if not now, when? May God raise in us an urgency. May God break our hearts like Nehemiah's to mourn the condition of the city. May we snap out of just imposing our thoughts and way of life onto everybody else's life. And to remember, there are really people living their lives not understanding the hope that we have in us. And let's be moved to pray, to plead, and to act on their behalf. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, thank you for the good news of the gospel tonight. Thank you for the good news of a righteousness that is not of ourselves, but is from you. A righteousness that is apart from the law that comes alone through faith in Jesus Christ. Oh Lord, I pray for the person here tonight who's so tired and weary of covering with fig leaves, trying so hard to try to do better realizing that it does not a thing to lift the shame and the guilt. Oh God, there are many in the city covering with fig leaves tonight. Many whom we know by name, 
We live beside them. We work with them. We go to school with them. They're on our ball teams. I, I ask, Lord, I pray that you would stir the heart of this church to reflect the heart of Nehemiah. That we would be grieved at the lostness of the city. But then our grieving would move us to praying and our praying would move us to acting. What a message we have. Who, who would not want this message? A forgiveness of sin and a righteousness that covers us for all of eternity. God, if we have received that message, then we've received it this evening by grace. And we have every reason in this place to praise and honor your name. To give you our heartfelt devotion. To speak your praises and the glory of your name for the salvation that has come to us freely at your hand. And yet as we rejoice with our own lips, we are reminded that so many others need what we have. So ignite us, God. Set a fire. Move our hearts. Make us uncomfortable. I thank you for leaders here who want this as well. I thank you for leaders here who desire for this church and for churches around this area to reach the lost, who care, who are not complacent and not settled to go about business as usual. There's too much on the line. There's too much at stake. Continue to ignite that in our hearts. I ask for you to move in power, whatever it may be that we need to hear individually tonight, you would bring that to the surface, that we would not delay in obeying you. Whatever it is that you're calling us to do, whether it's a decision that we need to make, a sin we need to turn from, or whether it's a conversation that we need to have or an invitation that we need to give, that we would obey you because of what you have done for us. In Jesus' name I pray, amen. Amen.